1: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One
0: production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called
1: Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL. Some of you have seen me on Instagram. And some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Nikias Duncan of the Dunker Spot podcast, the You Late podcast, Basketball News, and we had a really fun, wide-ranging conversation about the league about a week in teams that are exceeding expectations or defying expectations some are below and players that are doing that and and we start out with our early takes on the officiating slash rule changes that are going on in the league so conversation i really enjoyed runs a little bit short of an hour hope you enjoy it thank you so much for coming on
1: oh no problem thanks for having me
2: It's always a challenge to make big pronouncements a week, really a week into the season. So I'm not going to ask you, and I'm not going to try to do that myself um, for any individual players or teams or anything like that. But I think that we have enough information now to think about, to share some thoughts and to get everything else. And uh, the place that I wanted to start, partially inspired by some of what I saw last night, is... We're now one week into the regular season with the points of emphasis kind of changing some of the foul-drawing antics that had existed before. How are you feeling about that? Like, the changes, how it's affecting players, how it's affecting the product about a weekend?
1: Um, I mostly feel fine about it. Like, I'm glad that they've gotten out some of the... I guess the cheaper foul drawing tricks if that makes sense i'm just kind of waiting on the course correction at this point it's probably going to come within the next couple of weeks or so because what it seems like has happened is that they've cut out that stuff and they're also just not calling blatant things at the rim and i don't think that should be the answer uh like i appreciate having better game flow and again like getting out some of the arm hooking or some of the weird jumping to the side to draw fouls like that stuff is objectively good but also i'm seeing guys getting hammered at the rim and it's just like play ball and i think that's 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 probably a bridge too far.
2: Yeah, and I I think that one of the encouraging parts to me about it is that it seems like at least so far, the referees have taken the ethos of the rule changes to heart, meaning like even some things that aren't rigidly within the, not even necessarily the letter of the law, but within the like kind of like the guidelines that have been put forth by the league, but are still kind of like cheap stuff are being called what I would say is correct for the way that I think the league should be officiated. Mm-hmm. And so that's good. But I agree with you that there. I see. So, so one way to differentiate it is that it's not rigidly this way is that it's kind of like out on the floor versus around the basket. And this in my ideal world, calling fewer kind of like cheap out on the floor things is not the same as just calling a lot fewer fouls in every facet of the game. Like if you get hammered around the basket, that's still a foul and that should be considered a foul. And, like, one of the weird ones that happened a couple of times in the Heat Nets game, which I watched on Wednesday, was refs just not really using what I would consider the traditional rules for charges. So, like, there was Mm -hmm. one where Dwayne Dedman was. Not only did he get there late, something refs get consistently wrong that it's about you know when the gu- it should be about when the guy takes off, not about when the contact occurs. But also like Deadman's heels were straight up in the restricted area, like it wasn't even yeah. particularly clear. And so it's like, yeah, if you want to do some sort of spirit thing of like he was in the right vicinity beforehand and and do that, well, okay. First of all, I don't think it qualifies under that. But second of all, like you have a rule on this, like there this isn't even like a letter of the law, spirit of the law type of thing. <laughs> (laughs) it's like okay you you've had people whether it's broadcasters or players or fans pointing to that little circle that you deliberately put out there on the court and it's like well if you're still gonna have that right and that's the rule so you get into that and so like and then a couple minutes later Kyle Lowry took a completely clean charge and it's like okay that's the type of thing that we should reward and I mean even Lowry was moving a little bit but it was within the within like what I think is the kind of the tolerable realm and so that ties in with what you are saying. It's like there's a difference between calling fewer of these things that should be excised from the game entirely, and calling fewer fouls, period, and just letting a lot of stuff go.
1: Right. And I would say like I feel like the players are starting to feel it. Like I was watching uh I was watching Timberwolves Bucks this morning, trying to catch up on that game, and there was a possession in which Pat Compton receives the ball above the break and he pump fakes so a defender goes flying and he just lets them fly by before continuing on with the possession. I was like, you know, this time last year he probably would have jumped into him and got three free throws out of that so i'm glad that players seem to recognize that some of the stuff that went last year isn't going this year as well so i think some of that is starting to come now i'm just waiting on the referees to kind of adjust with the paint play because again i think that's a step too far from what i've seen so far
2: yet another one that we've we're kind of slowly seeing the behavior change but it takes it takes time is for some of those uh nate my nate duncan the other and duncan i've talked to this week um calls it the bridge to nowhere where basically it's like the point guard is just dribbling around, trying to find somebody to foul him, and they're not. You know, if there's nothing really going on on the play, and the, the you know they're not they're not getting baited as much, and there's still a couple. And I think that the ideal end game for a lot of this, and I would say it's the same if the league ever takes the proper step on adjudicating intentional fouls to stop fast breaks. The idea is not to call a bunch of these fouls. The idea is that the conduct that leads to those. Fouls doesn't happen anymore. And I think we're already getting, and that's what you were getting at with the Pat Conditon thing. We are moving closer to that earlier than I expected, which is extremely encouraging. And that's why you kind of start, you know, as you're, uh, and these aren't the first league officiating reforms that have happened, but it is a pretty ambitious slate of them is that you start with some of the stuff that's most egregious and then you work your way from there and you adjust and and then you know there'll be i'm sure not only will there be the equilibrium shift that you talked about before but also they will tweak these guidelines over the course of formally over the course of years informally probably within this year to get Great. closer to right and part of what makes this so encouraging to me is that first of all i think you can see some of the benefits already and that it's a lot easier to get from where we are now to a to, to, like, a better solution than it was where we were before.
1: Absolutely. Like, again, like, if there's one thing I can say, uh, I, I have my nitpicking about how the officiating has been as they try to make these changes. But the flow of the game is so much better. Yes. Like, I'm, I'm so glad that we're not at, like, three-hour regulation games at this point, like it seems to be a pretty smooth flowing experience. And I think that's going to I mean, the fans seem to love it from, you know, my timeline is only anecdotal, but like my timeline has loved the way the games have been appreciated this year. And they love that these games are flowing more smoothly. Um, the slander has picked up for a few select stars since <laughs> the season has started. Uh, so I, I do think the NBA has done right by their fans with this overall. But again, like there's always room for better.
2: There is. And I know that there has been a lot of discussion already on various players, whether we're talking about James Harden has been, of course, the most prominent or Trey Young or Steph Curry and, and how it's going to change it. And I, I think we're we're still dealing with too small a sample size, especially with Harden, when you consider the injury that he dealt with and not really having an off season, Like... I think this is going to affect him significantly, as will the passage of time because he's getting older and everything else. But I'm I'm kind of – to me, it's a little bit premature there. I don't know if you agree with that.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty early, especially with Harden. Like I just wrote a piece on that um, on basketballnews.com about some of the factors with James Harden not getting to the free throw line as much. And like some of it is rules. Like he's not getting the arm hook stuff like we're accustomed to seeing. Um, like, there was a play in the Bucks game in the opener in which he isos against Mamu, takes a step back three, kind of swings the leg, trying to draw a foul there, and the refs just kind of look at him. So, like, that stuff, again, the obvious stuff that isn't part of basketball, like, they are trying to curb, and that makes sense. But also, Harden is older. He didn't have much of an offseason. He is dealing with the hamstring. Like, there's some personnel stuff with no Kyrie. It's easier to shrink the floor against Brooklyn than it was last year. So, like, there's just a lot going on. I think it's a little too easy to be like, well, rules change, Harden playing, bad therefore hard is a fraud like we, we don't have to go that far
2: No, and I sometimes get frustrated with how impatient people and that can be media members it can be people in my timeline it can be anything are to announce and determine things like, is it possible that these rules really affect James Harden and that a lot of the the stuff that he had been doing before, like that 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 was that we didn't think was really part of the game, that this makes him a significantly worse player? Yes, that is a possibility. However, I'm going to need more than five games to feel that way, and right. it's it's gonna it, and and I don't see I don't see the benefit. Like, I mean, are you advocating then that he's trash and the Nets should trade him or bench for something? No, not really. I mean, does it change their if it if it ends up being true, does it change their likelihood of of making the finals and winning a title, yeah, absolutely it does, and so does Kyrie and a bunch of other things. But the other factor with Harden that I'm keeping an eye on is there are a lot of different ways to make a you know to to make Harden's game work. And this came up a little bit in the in the game, in the Heat contest where where the yeah, it was kind of a gross offensive game overall. But not having Nick Claxton, who was who was sick, seems like a non-COVID illness for that game. It was a reminder that Harden, I think, his cadence works a lot better with a role man, especially one who can move to the basket quickly and who can catch lobs. Well, I mean, the chemistry <laughs> that he had with Clint Capella and everything like that. And when like Harden's playing with LaMarcus Aldridge, he like he's not used to the opportunities that creates, and the opportunities that creates aren't as like aren't as good for him.
1: Right, right. Like he's running some pick and roll with Paul Millsap and it's just like well Millsap isn't a vertical spacer and like he's a stretch guy but at this stage of Millsap's career like that's probably just a switch so what you want to do is put James Harden in a situation where he can create advantages and also stress your defense and it feels like without Nick Claxton who has honestly he struggled to begin this year Agreed. like without that kind of vertical threat you're kind of stuck like what is what reason do you not have to just switch against James Harden right now yeah, and Harden, d-
2: Harden doesn't have the burst. I mean, the, the to like so if you're switching a big onto him, he doesn't have the burst to get all the way there. And also, you can you can send more to recover. And as he's adjusting to the way things are called, like I mean, he had a rock solid kind of like battle plan where it's like he was so just insanely gifted at knowing like if anybody's arm was out of place, how to go through it. And like it's going to be a very significant adjustment for somebody, the person who in that facet of the game spent the most mental energy. And had the most, I would argue in some ways, the most honed natural skill for Mm -hmm. that element to have that just be not something that's rewarded in the same way anymore. And like... Yeah, you could argue in different ways, like Chris Paul, some of the stuff that he did in terms of stopping short and going into guys and knowing where everybody was. Like, I mean, They're they're both foul savants in different ways, I guess is one way to put it. But Harden's, I think, requires a greater adjustment because it's like when he's driving, the thought process is just completely different now. Whereas Chris Paul's stuff was kind of more within a different kind of flow.
1: Right. And James Harden alluded to it in the postgame uh, press conference last night where he was like, you know, I'd love to get back to dropping 30 and 40. But, like, I haven't been able to really play basketball. Like, my offseason was spent rehabbing. So, in addition to like him just needing to get healthy with the rules changes, like, he hasn't been able to experiment, okay, what works in the foul drawing range. And so, like, now he's pretty much, and shout out to uh, PD Webb above the break three, tweeted this out in the timeline. Like, he's basically using the regular season not only to get in shape, but also it's kind of like a test study of, like, okay, what works now in terms of foul drawing. Yeah. And having to do that on the fly while the roster's kind of in flux again, no. And obviously no Kyrie, which is a whole different thing. It's a lot to sort through right now. And, you know, we're five games into the regular season, so we're probably having a different discussion entirely, like 15, 20 games in, once he gets more comfortable, once he gets healthier, once some of the guys get back. But right now, it's just a whole lot of moving parts.
2: Exactly. And I I think that's a healthy way of of thinking about it. And yes, the Nets are two and three. And no, I'm not super concerned. But I mean, then there's also the question about, you know, like, what roster are they going to have available and everything else. But it is, it is really interesting. And I think that's a good way. So, we talked about kind of that that is is that the idea of what we need to see and what we don't is a healthy approach in terms of everyone else. And so, the way I like to think about this for myself is we'll start with the team's players, however you want to go, that have defied your expectations. And and some of it will be just small sample size theater and you don't think it's going to be that same thing, but like what has struck you so far that is different than what you expected?
1: uh I mentioned a little bit earlier, like I watched Bucks-Wolves earlier this morning. The Timberwolves defense seems to be pretty legit right now. Yeah. And like I, I've been clamoring basically for the last seven, eight months. Like, hey, if you're going to play pick and roll coverage with Carl Anthony Towns, please play him closer to the level of the screen. Drop is not for him. It's just not for him. He can't navigate the gap that well. He's not very good at leaping backwards. Like, that's just not him. Force some activity. Get him close to the level. Force... Some rotations behind it, you have athletes, if nothing else on the back line, just do that. And the Wolves have done that. And like some of the offensive talent that they face, like they face New Orleans twice. Um, The best offense they've faced so far is Milwaukee, but they did so without Drew and without Brooke, who at least makes you think offensively with his ability to space the floor and also mash mismatches on the block. But the activity is there. I've been very impressed with what I've seen on film for them so far.
2: Yeah. I have been as well and Chris Finch made a made a really I would say significant decision to make one of his primary lineups and you know like one that they've given real time to Koki and McDaniel's together and they were extremely disruptive defensively in that uh, Rockets game which is the the game I watched the most I've seen the Wolves a few other times but like that was the one because I broadcasted it that I saw the whole thing and the my biggest concern there with that with that combination along with particularly well actually not even just particularly with russell edwards and towns like it with anybody who's worse than them it exacerbates it of like well okay you have two very limited offensive players with that group is that going to work and again we're a small sample size seat here we're 103 the glass possessions with those with akogi and mcdaniels on the floor together this is i just think completely wild plus 12 net rating mm-hmm. but an 89 offensive rating they've just been <laughs> they've just been so crazy defensively that so i mean Obviously, it's too small a sample to make any definitive pronouncements, but it's like they've been they've been unsuccessful, and some of that was like missed shots, and they had they had some weird stretches during that. But it's like okay, well they, they but they've been forcing that in the Rockets game, in particular where they forced a ton of turnovers. But what I really like about it from from Finch and of course from the players is that it's made, it's made everybody's roles more manageable, you know, so, like, and I I would have been very impressed with, like, especially Anthony Edwards, like, he's, his aggressiveness level defensively, and his execution has been so much better than it was a lot of last year.
1: Oh, yeah, he flies around on the weak side now, like, he's pouncing at the nail, he wants to jump the passing lanes, like, he's, he's having fun doing that, and I think that's the most important thing for a guy like that, when you have the athletic tools, you're waiting on, like, the mental aspect of it to catch up, just because he, I mean, he's, this is year two for Him in the NBA. The fact that he seems to be enjoying the effort and has really bought into what Minnesota wants him to do, like that's a good sign moving forward.
2: Right. And the idea is not necessarily that Minnesota is going to stay the number two defense in the NBA, but the idea, but sort of paralleling in some ways the Portland Trailblazers, where I don't think Minnesota's offense is going to be anywhere near as good as Portland's has been consistently during Damian Lillard's tenure just because Damian Lillard is that kind of superlative player. And Towns is great, but, you know, Willard, mm-hmm. both with his ball dominance and just the incredible level of play that he's had. But what sinks kind of flawed teams is often that your defense is so bad that your offense can't make up for it. And I'm not even talking about like the feedback loops that if you're having to take the ball out of the basket the whole time, you're not getting as much of transitions, everything else. It just, it makes it so that you have to be insane on offense in order to be competitive against decent teams. Mm-hmm. And so if they're 15th, If they're 18th, if they're 20th, as opposed to being like 25th or worse, like that makes a gargantuan difference.
1: Right. And that's all they need to do because you have, again, he's not Damian Lillard, but you have a Carl Anthony Towns who can stress defense on all three levels. D'Angelo Russell is a pull-up threat. Anthony Edwards has been interesting to me on offense because he shot so well. It's it's weird with Ant in particular, because he shot well from three to start the season, and I may have liked six of the threes he's taken this year.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny, like the shot, so I, I if you think about like for me the mechanics of his shot, like his balance is something that I've noticed. It seems a lot better. But the shots he takes are not like they're better than like Georgia for sure but it's mm-hmm. not like it's like uh, like uh, my theory on Anthony Edwards was if you take out the like 15 to 20% worst shots in his profile at Georgia it's like there's a really effective player in there and mm-hmm. we've seen some of that but it's more just like he has become a better shooter which is actually you could argue in certain ways even more encouraging because mm. if he can do the, the other part what I thought was going to be the first part if he does it second then I mean then you're really cooking with gas
1: right it's it's weird like the good news is that he- he can get to his pull-up and these side steals whenever he wants. And the bad news is he knows that he can get to those pull-ups and the side steals whenever he wants. And so he just decides to do that. Like There was a position early in the Bucks game where he runs a pick-and-roll with Carl Anthony Towns. He draws a late switch. I was like, alright, cool. They're just going to swing the ball to the left wing. They're going to pitch it in the cat. They're going to force a double to be able to play out of that. And instead, Anthony Edwards just kind of walks back Giannis, who switched out onto him. He just catches a pull-up in his face. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to say about that? Like, you don't <laughs> want that from a process standpoint but also shooting particularly the pull-up shooting was the biggest question mark with anthony edwards profile and if he could knock down those kind of shots over a contesting Giannis, like it wasn't one of those duck under the screen set up shot it just fired like he got into a rhythm dribble and knocked it down to space like if he can knock down that shot how do you guard anthony edwards
2: right and so and, and it, it, i mean that's why the future is is really exciting with him i'm still trying to figure out Exactly. And I mean Anthony Edwards, this is his age twenty season. He he doesn't turn twenty-one until next offseason. There's a lot of time for him to figure this out, but it's and this happens a lot for the kind of like wing-sized guys, is where, okay, what is his ideal role within a really good offense? So is he a high volume secondary scorer? Is he somebody that you trust to have the ball in his or is it just a, a very different structure? And part of what makes Minnesota so tantalizing to me over the next couple of years is that Edwards might be kind of a challenging guy to square. Like maybe he ends up, I'm not saying they're the same player at all, but like in kind of the Zach Levine mold or something like that, where it's not like a true, like the same thing. He's not like Mike Conley, you know, but he's a different, but still has a large role within the offense and and is getting better at doing it. But Mm -hmm. Carl Anthony Towns is so gifted and so unusual that maybe the the concept for Chris Finch and the Wolves is just the normal rules don't apply to us. We're just going to have to find our own balance because mm. sort of like the Denver Nuggets— you don't want to go under the traditional paradigm because that is actually t- typically that underserves a big that's as talented as Towns is. Right.
1: And like, I just love the Denver comp for this unit period. Cause like, I do think you have a guy like cat is not a yokage level passer, but like you do have a guy that you can legitimately run your offense through. It's not just some delay stuff to get guys going downhill. Like you can legit to say, Hey, we're going to run a high post play that is designed for Carl to find a cutter or to find a shooter after some screening action. Like he's that kind of guy. And so when you have that on top of him being one of, if not the best big man shooter we've seen, then like a lot of things can be simplified. Like I, I want to see what the chemistry with him and Anthony Edwards becomes moving forward because like it's already good. Like they're already finding chemistry in pick and roll. Like some of the re screens we see from Cat, you get those two in an empty corner. Like there really isn't much you can do as long as Ant keeps his head up. So, like, I think ideally Minnesota wants Ant to kind of be the lead dog. Maybe not a, a Luka-like every position you're bringing the ball up guy. But as far as who's initiating and who's getting downhill first, like, I think they want him to be that guy and then allow D'Angelo Russell to play off of that. I think that's the best structure for him, but it's just kind of finding that balance between where you want to get those guys, those opportunities.
2: And, and D'Angelo Russell is overpaid, and I think some would say overqualified to play that kind of like more of a spot-up, secondary, tertiary creator role. But I also think it's something he's better suited for than than the other ones. And so it, it, it is this weird Dynamic where it's like, yeah, you're not paying a guy. and I mean, first of all, Garrison Rosas who traded for him, isn't there anymore. You're not trading for a guy to have him be that role, but I think it can it can work reasonably well. And then also theoretically, I think you want Russell to be. Finch is going to want to manage the rotation so that Russell is the guy whenever Towns is out, and so you go mm-hmm. to you know with Reed and you go with with some other structures. Something else I'm going to. I mean, we're we're such a small sample size. In Minnesota's only played four games as we record this. Edwards actually at this moment has an I- basically an identical true shooting percentage to last year, despite making more of his threes and taking a higher proportion of his shots from three. And that's because mm-hmm. he's had a drop off in two point efficiency and also getting to the line a little bit less. And I'm not like when I've watched film, I haven't seen anything there. I think there's just the of it's a little anomalous. He's shooting 11% on floaters, but not taking that many of them, you know, a couple of those type of things. But it is interesting that's like I, I wasn't super worried other than some of the shot selection stuff about Edwards from two. I'm not worried right now, but it's like that's another way that he can – that he'll improve. And I think some of that will just be regression of the mean.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be some regression and just growing experience with the ball. Like, again – chris finch is also trying to figure some things out with these lineups like one of the things i noted in the bus game was like they would get a switch for carl anthony towns and he would have a size mismatch and then you look at what's happening behind it like there was there was a position where you had i want to say jared vanderbilt and anthony edwards cut at the same time And it's just like well you can't do that and with milwaukee bringing the double if you have two non-shooters on the floor period like it just makes it more difficult to work with that so like some of the ways you could generate some rim touches for, a car, for Anthony Edwards is for him to cut while Towns is on the block. And, like, that doesn't seem to be an option right now just because they're trying to figure out the general spacing and also who needs to be on the floor with those guys at the same time. So, like, I think as we get more of a sample, as they play more and as the lineups get figured out, like, I do think Anthony Edwards he be able to get downhill more, like, I think yes. that's where he's at his best. And once you have that, like, again, Cat can kill you from anywhere. Anthony Edwards can get downhill. He's just—he's so strong. Like, there really isn't much you can do with him with a head of steam. And once he's able to mix that in better with the growing pull-up jumper, he's going to be a problem. And D'Angelo Russell is able to play off of all of that attention. And as you mentioned, like, he's probably overqualified for that. So it's—they have a really interesting three-man core offensively.
2: Yeah, Speaking of interesting three-man cores, as it were, the team—so Minnesota, I would say, is probably number two on my list. The team that has surprised me the most is Cleveland. And I, you know, I didn't get to watch much of the preseason. I was otherwise occupied. And I, you know, thinking about it conceptually, it's like, okay, they're going to start marketing Mobley and Jared Allen together. And— you know, I still have some of the defensive, cons- or some sorry, some of the offensive concerns with that group, and they've actually played a lot with Rubio because of the time that Darius Garland missed. But they've defended a lot better, and a lot of that, I mean, Evan Mobley has been much better than I, much better, not than I anticipated that he would be because I was low on Evan Mobley just because rookies. Whether they're playing power forward or center, rookie bigs take time. And he's been mm-hmm. better earlier than I expect basically any young big to be defensively.
0: Yeah,
1: like I was worried about one, what the lineup constructions were going to be. Cause like I don't, I didn't think Evan Mobley, even though it's going to be his best position long term, I didn't know in year one if Evan Mobley would be able to handle a lot of minutes at the five. He's looked good when doing that. Mm-hmm. I worried about the spacing offensively with him at the four and playing with Jared Allen that has been more tenable than i thought and just he just looks so much more comfortable than i expected like he's driving with a little bit of juice like he's attacking the offensive glass with a little bit more physicality than i thought defensively he's flying around all over the place he's contesting shots all over the place he is still not fouling which is something that carried over from his days at usc he has been in incre- i don't know if we have enough superlatives again we're working with a small sample size right now but like i don't know if there are enough superlatives for what he's done to start this year
2: and on top of that you brought up the idea of like how kind of things aren't moving too fast for him, which is so surprising. And I, for me, I've noticed it more actually in the offensive end. Where mm-hmm. yeah, Mobley has limitations, and you know he's he's not the not the greatest shooter yet, and we'll see where that goes later in his career. Again, twenty years old doesn't turn twenty one until I mean unless the Cavs make the finals next season. Um, and I, but the idea of using him at least part time as a hub is plausible to me. I'm not saying you necessarily want to build the whole thing around it now, but basically, I mean, Sam Vecini and I talked about it a lot last year and Mobley, the film on him, I mean, and I've seen him in person going back a couple of years, like the squint idea was kind of like bam out of bio. And I mean, bam, I had I had long fears that Bam was going to be kind of his generation's Draymond Green, meaning a player who we don't appreciate what makes him special. So comparing players with similar, kind of like every, not every undersized power forward is the next Draymond Green. You know, like that sort of a thing. Right. And Mobley doesn't have; they're not the same player in many ways. But part of what what I like about Bam is that, like, and and the Bam Mobley comp is that I don't think, knowing what we know right now, that Mobley can. And even though I've liked a lot of the connective tissue in his offensive game, you know, like the passing and and, and some of the decision, like broader than passing, decision making that we've seen from Mobley so far, I don't think he has the overall like ability of somebody like a Jokic or Towns, where you're, you know, they're your every down running back offensive creativity wise but there are ways to use players with his gifts and especially with cleveland's roster still being in at least some version of flux it's exciting because mobley having more capability is something that i'm hopeful they can use
1: right like i think the palette is pretty clear for this dude and he already has a very high baseline of skills again like he's not a Jokic level passer but he is a guy that you can run stuff through now And I'm very excited to see what him and Darius Garland is going to look like in pick and roll as Garland is more consistently healthy. Because I do think on a night that Garland has it going and you're getting two to the ball or you're just playing a team like, you know, like a Denver that plays Jokic higher in pick and roll, you can kind of create those short roll opportunities. Like, the high lows between Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, like, they're going to be there. Like, he can see that, and he can pick that out pretty smoothly. And with a guy like Evan Mobley, he may not be a high-level self-creator, at least not right now, but because of his length and because of his touch, like, you don't need him to create wild advantages if that makes sense like if you get him within that 8 to 12 foot range like you can just sprinkle in jump hooks and push shots and floaters which is unusual for that position but like he has that touch he has that ability so like the pathways to him being an effective offensive player aren't that long like he can already find his way as a passer as a play finisher and he has so much room to grow like i again like not enough good things to be said about evan mobley right now
2: Absolutely. One thing that's lingering a little bit for me that I want to put a pin in, it's not, it's not, I mean, we're, we're small sample size. So many things are going well for them that I want to put a pin in is that the Cavs have been really bad on the defensive glass in the, um, whether we're talking about the Markkinen, Mobley, Allen, Triumvirate, or even when they're playing with like Okoro, Mobley and Allen as the three four five. I, I think of that, you know, like as being some of it is just kind of learning where everything is and and you know going for blocks and a couple of those other things but i they're basically like they're Towards the bottom of the league in defensive rebounding when Mobley and Allen play together and I will want to take a look around Thanksgiving at where that is and if it's still bad then I'll probably start really looking into film and I'll keep an eye on it when I'm watching the Cavs
1: right right and that that was a minor knock against well I guess maybe not minor but that was a knock against Evan Mobley coming out like the rebounding wasn't there for him in particular and like with him and Jared Allen like Jared Allen has historically not been a great defensive rebounder yeah like he's he that's always been kind of the thing that's that physicality with him you get him up against a bulkier dude like he struggles so that is a pitfall but i think they're banking on being able to create events defensively with all the length they have swarming around like they've been able to do that so i'm with you i just want to see more
2: so i'll let you i have a player that i want to discuss but i'll let well let's talk teams first if there's any other team that really sticks out to you as defying your expectations or like positive or negative
1: Uh, I'm kind of on defense with Toronto right now because heading in, I was like, okay, this is a team that's going to struggle in the half court. They're going to be really good defensively. And, you know, the swing is going to be transition. Like, can they create good enough looks? Can they get out and transition enough? And like the defense has somehow been better than I expected. And the half court offense is worse than I expected somehow. So I'm still trying to get a feel on them. Like OG Ananobi, he was my most approved player pick heading into the year. He started the season off terribly, and the last three games he has looked like the most improved player in the NBA. Yeah, I mean so he, I just, he had like,
2: he had 16 points in the first quarter against the Pacers and and their win. And I so the game that I watched most intently with them was the Celtics one when they were really dominant. And it was the the question for me with so I, I get the duality that you were kind of going after. It was my same challenge with with. Toronto was like, I thought the Ralph offense was gonna be bad. And having Siakam around just because he's a capable basketball player will help, but I also don't know it's not like gonna solve everything for them. And right now, the Toronto Raptors are fifth from the bottom, using Clinton glasses version, in half court points per possession. Um mm. their their offensive rating in the half court is 83.3, which is distinctly not great. By the way, Detroit 70 points per hundred possessions in the half court, Jeez. which is incredible. But Toronto Twenty-five percent of their possessions are in like other stuff, so I think that's transition, and um, I believe that counts offensive rebounds as well. And mm-hmm. so, like that's that's great. Like, so if that split happens, then I mean you're you're probably not great offensively. I mean, but you're you're okay. It's, but that is a, it is a really challenging pendulum swing because what happens is that means that you can kind of beat anybody and lose to anybody because you, like, it, it, it only takes, and it can even be, like, the weird, like, luck stuff. Like, I talked a lot last year about how, toronto like they gave up a ton of threes and their opponents hit a ton of those threes last year which they had not in previous years and so like it could end up being things like that of like you you defended really well in the possession but that fade away from player x goes in and so you have to take the ball to the basket and then you do it and then they get transition all that kind of stuff like I feel like it's going to be a really weird year. Like the Raptors are going to beat multiple top five teams and then are going to be like at least like one of the Oklahoma City Thunders wins.
1: <laughs> that sounds about right. Like even when Pascal comes back, like the question I had and I talked about this, uh, there was a Twitter space I was in. But in. one, my thing was like if I'm a defense or if I'm just a head coach facing the Raptors, like what prevents me from just switching everything? Like, all right, beat my switch. Win one on one. Even when Pascal comes back, like he's going to be their best like mismatch hunter that they have right now. But, well, like,
2: my funniest thing with this is try to imagine the Toronto Raptors trying to score against the Toronto Raptors. It oh, would God. Be, it would just be like, because there was a point in that Celtics game where Fred Van, Vliet, Fred, Fred Van Vliet was getting switched on to Tatum kind of regularly, and they're like, fine. <laughs> you know, I like, was okay. And, like, Jason Tatum is a much better offensive player than anyone on the Raptors.
1: Hey, like, this, I don't know what you. That, that's my discomfort with toronto is like a playoff or play in team because it's just like at a certain point you got to be able to score in the half court in some way Mm -hmm. like even if you just have one mismatch that you can kind of spam late in games like there has to be something and like right now like scotty barnes looks much better than expected another rookie that's performing well but like he's not a mismatch you know outside the offensive glass like he's not going to do that consistently og's learning how to do it pascal when he comes back like some of the question marks with him was like can he consistently do that as a number one guy because it's been pretty uneven even since Kawhi Lin has been gone. So I I just, I don't know. I'm enjoying them on defense and I'm enjoying them in transition when they aren't blowing layups. But I just need to see more from them.
2: Yeah, and something, I mean, they basically haven't played any very much this year. Toronto's performance in close games late that what you're bringing up of the spamming like that i mean that is going to be like i mean that could end up being a circumstance of like why they underperform their point differential potentially this year is that they just don't that those like and and that it's going to be hard for them to come back late like Mm -hmm. let's say they're unless they can get something in transition let's say they're four points down with a minute to go like can they get Five points on two possessions. Like maybe, but that's gonna be that's gonna be a lot of work for them. Yeah. Um, one other one I wanted to ask you about. I'm I mean, they've only played three games so far. I am trying not to be fatalistic about the Mavericks because I've been so low on Jason Kidd as a coach for a while now, and they have Luca and everything else. How are you feeling about Dallas in
1: this early,
2: early, early juncture?
1: Uh I feel like I'm a little bit higher on them than I was a week and a half ago. Interesting. In a weird way. And like I'm still generally low on them because I just don't think they have advantage creators outside of Luca. And that's a problem for me. Especially in the con- in a playoff context. Because we've seen that in two straight posties where Luka goes supernova, then he gets tired and it's like, all right, who else? And it's, you know, year one against the Clippers, KP was down, so it was no one. In year two, KP might as well have not been there. And so I- I'm still struggling with that. Some of the offensive design stuff I've seen from Dallas has been mostly fine. And so – I came into it like, okay, Jason Kidd is the worst coach ever. I, I don't think this is gonna work. And like that stuff's been better. I've been more concerned with Dallas's personnel than I have been with Jason Kidd.
2: Yeah, personnel, and I would say like, especially like for me, the game I watched most closely was their by far their worst game when they got their butts kicked by the Hawks. And mm. some of it was personnel, and some of it was like in that game, their point of attack defense was straight up terrible for most of the game, and that was a problem. Like it, it's we focus like playing Dwight Powell and Porzingis together. Brings different challenges, but it, like just like came up a lot with the the Jazz in their series against Clippers last year. All of those conversations matter a lot less when the guy who's guarding the ball is just getting driven by every time.
1: Right, and that's I don't know. Like I, I it's obviously early. And Luca is so good that he can make a lot of the stuff not matter. Yes, but I just dislike so much around Luca. I think it's kind of where I'm at with Dallas, honestly.
2: Yeah, and it's concerning. Like I've been a Maxi Kleba believer for a long time, but I'm it's waning. I mean, and he's a little bit older. He came into the came into the league late, and mm-hmm. the Mavericks don't have. And this this was a criticism of mine. Like, kind of was one of the things I was worried about with kid is that I don't think they have much of a margin for error defensively, just because their defensive personnel isn't great. Like they, you know. They 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 can't run a lot of different schemes. They don't have that many really capable perimeter defenders, and mm-hmm. they have they have some guys that can be functional to be sure. But like and I mean Bullock was a part of a good with good defense last year. I think Luka can be, and I like some of the other guys like Finney Smith. But it's like okay, where is the where is the growth going to come from and everything else? So it's I'm I don't I'm I think it's too early to be in like in, a, in any specific mold with them. But I am I mean I've I've been fascinated with Dallas for such a long time. It's not going to change now.
1: Yeah, especially on the defensive end, like Dallas has a much worse version of the Utah problem that I have, where it's like I love Royce O'Neal and he's a good defender. But if he's your best perimeter defender, then I kind of have an issue with where you're at. Yeah, <laughs> within a I, I,
2: I, I describe that sometimes. It's a little bit different, but the theory with Robert Covington that was always so weird is that Robert Covington is a very good forward defender, but what he's worst at is defending talented wings. It's like, okay, well, you can use that, but it's harder to use.
1: Right, right, right. And so with Dallas... Dallas is just like Dorian Finney Smith and Reggie Bullock can't be that can't be it. because like why how do you go small if those are your two best forward defenders?
2: Yeah, I think that's and a if great you're, point.
1: And like if you're relying on Maxi again, like he had some good some good possessions against Kawhi and PG during the playoff series and stuff like that. But like if you're relying on that, that's problematic. And even trying to build a boat out of those kind of guys and maintaining some sort of giving Lucas some sort of relief offensively, that's, that's a tough thing to do. So, I'm I'm with you like lineup versatility scheme versatility kind of isn't there particularly defensively I I don't know I'm trying not to be but but but
2: but Lucas Lucas so good it might be more of a playoff problem than a regular season problem at at least in the macro sense like maybe there'll be a couple games where we go a little crazy but like that they'll still be there uh the player I wanted to talk about is Miles Bridges and I mean yes, yes he was the Eastern Conference player of the week in the first week of the season but he has he has shown a lot more growth to his overall offensive game than I expected and yeah He's shooting more threes, and and they're going in still at a high rate. But just putting the ball in his hands a little bit more, and good things happening is was stunning to me.
1: yeah Miles Bridges was one of my more fun watches last season because I'm I'm watching Hornet games for a little, mostly for Lamelo, but I want to see how the Hayward Field is going to be and things like that. And like once or twice every game, wouldn't even make lead to a maker, maybe not even a shot at him sometimes. But once or twice every game, Miles Bridges would make like a cross court dime or a random pocket pass. Or, like, if there's a swing-swing sequence, he just makes it quicker than I expect him to. And it's just like, wait, he has something. I didn't know that he had this. Like, I always pictured Miles Bridges as, like, obviously the violent dunker, but more of a play finisher overall. Like, he can operate in the pick-and-roll for you some. He can knock down shots on the perimeter. He, obviously, a lob threat can get going in transition. But, like, in the half corners, like, this guy's kind of slinging the pill a little bit. And so I'm glad that Charlotte has leaned into that a little bit more and just giving him more on ball responsibility. Like they're letting him boogie, mm-hmm. and you combine that kind of those kind of passing chops with the kind of violence that he has at the rim and off the ball. Like he's just shooting the leather off the ball right now. Like you have to close out on the hard, which is going to open up more of those drives. Like it makes sense. Maybe not Eastern Conference Player of the Week sense, but it makes sense that he's taking a step. Like he just looks a lot more comfortable out there.
2: Well, and you think about kind of how this all fits together. That playing Bridges. I mean, I don't think the shooting is necessarily going to be like, right now, as we we record this, he's shooting 40% on seven and a half threes per game. Do I think Mm -hmm. that's going to continue? Probably not, but I would be thrilled if it did. I'd be really thrilled if it did. But that he has somebody who can be the lead creator, who can find him, that you can generate these advantages. Like a a comparison, though they're not the same remotely as players, is like Joe Harris— gets a ridiculously large amount of opportunities where he has an advantage. And Joe Mm -hmm. Harris, because it's the thing he is best at, uses most of those to take jump shots. But if Miles Bridges can use, he's not going to generate that many because it's not, you know, the Hornets are not the Nets and and they probably aren't going to be at any point in the near future. But if Bridges can use those advantage opportunities Mm -hmm. better than I thought he could, and create advantages more reliably, then sort of like we were talking about earlier with Anthony Edwards, it becomes a different balance. And that creates a lot, and, and that makes life easier, you know, m- means that the the Hornets are probably asking for less from their other perimeter players. Now, I think, you know, having Rozier back will help a lot of this stuff. And mm-hmm. maybe my frustrations with their decisions at center will matter a little bit less. <laughs> Though, I'm still freaked out about their defense and probably will be all year.
1: Yeah, the defense has given me some pause. And I think a lot of that is tied into their center room to where, you know, it all kind of comes full of circles. I did not expect Miles Bridges to start at the four over P.J. Washington. Same. I, I understand why because they need someone competent to pl- fill those backup minutes when Miles. I mean, when Mason Plumlee isn't out there, which God bless Mason Plumlee. Um, and a quick shout out to Nick Richards who did look good in one Boston game. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like I wish I felt better about their interior. If, they, if I felt better about the interior, like I would have some takes to get off about the Hornets right now. But I don't. So once some of we get some a little bit of shooting regression, then I, I just want to see where they're at.
2: Yeah, it's like it's the question of are they more than league pass dynamite and they're definitely that and i mean especially with with bridges showing more and and LaMelo and everything else and and you could argue that teams that are really fun offensively and bad defensively are actually more fun to watch but mm-hmm. for the transition is going to be there and then the other challenge that james Breco and Kupchak, it's kind of a, it's it's a it's a coach question and it's a gm question separately and together is where do they, so where do they take it from here? So if Bridges, you know, like Bridges looks like a start like a no-brainer starter then are you thinking of pj washington as kind of a 20 minute a game fill the holes at the four and the five are you thinking that he's overqualified for that are you thinking that's about the right role for him and then do you start to get into some of the really interesting stuff which is well what about what would we consider doing with gordon hayward not because hayward is like a bad player or because he's a poor fit or anything like that but like They're not at this point yet, but, and I don't know that PG Washington is good enough to force this issue, but will they have to kind of figure out how to, how to put these puzzle pieces together differently?
1: Um, I think it's something they're going to, have to consider a little bit sooner than they anticipated. Like I think, you know, Miles Bridges is extension eligible this coming off season. Yep. And PJ Washington the off season after that, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
2: Bridges will actually. So, uh, so small clarification: Bridges will be on his new contract next season. Um, he the extension window is closed, and PJ Washington will be extension eligible. So his contract will start in twenty three twenty four. So you're right on that. I just wanted to make sure the I'm I'm a gotcha. de- I'm a detailed nerd. That I just wanted to make sure the terminology was <laughs> there.
1: I oh, don't know. Understandable. Understandable. So like they're going to have to figure that out on top of Gordon Hayward making more from 30 million. And so what they do with the center room is going to be interesting, because one thing that's kind of been percolating in my mind over the last couple of days, like I haven't written about anything like that, but it's just like at what point do we see the rumor from like Jake Fisher at Bleacher Report, someone that Charlotte sniffing around Miles Turner?
2: I, like, I when, started smiling when you were setting it up because I'm like, Kevin Pritchard already tried to trade Miles Turner for Gordon Hayward.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm just like, when does that become a thing? And maybe it's not for Hayward. Maybe it's like, maybe it's Rogier in Washington or something. Like, I don't know what the construction is, but I'm just like, that fit seems to make sense to me. If for no other reason than to shift Mason Pullman to the bench because like he just can't, he's not a starter quality center on a playoff team. But, like, when does that start to happen? And just with P.J. in general, like, I wonder how Charlotte really views him. Because I do think he's a starter-quality guy. Like, he's gotten off to a rough start. He's been hurt, and he hasn't shot well from three, and we're working with a three-, four-game sample size. So, like, whatever. But, like, P.J. Washington's good. Like, that guy can legitimately shoot. He, He shoots well enough to force closeouts from fives anyway. And he's shown flashes of being able to hit Hit corner shooters, being able to find cutters, like the placement on some of his passers bothers me, but like the idea is there and that can get better with more reps. Like he is a gap filler in the classic sense at center. Like he can shoot, he can post up a small guy, he can screen for you and just force mismatches for other guys to attack. So that's going to be something that I'm keeping an eye on. As for the Hayward point, like I think they need him just because LaMelo is not. He's not a closer I trust yet, mostly because of shot profile. Like He's still trying to figure out things at the rim and still trying to figure out things in the intermediary, like the floater. He has a lot of versatility with the floater, but he had, he needs to be a little bit better at that from my eye. Gordon is really the only three-level scorer that they have right now. So I don't think they make a move on that until LaMelo grows more in that aspect or if Miles Bridges takes an even bigger leap offensively.
2: Right, and it's it's way too risky to put all of these eggs in the labello basket unless the other way that you could do it is you really believe in Terry Rozier as a creator and, and Rozier has been better than I anticipated, but I, I, the other kind of fascinating element of it is that while I am, a firm believer in the value of wing-sized guys, Miles Turner might be more unusual than, like, a like starting caliber wing-sized guy, especially if, like, I mean, and there was this idea for a long time of, like, okay, well, if you play a floor-spacing five, then that means you can play somebody, like, I remember this, like, I even used to say this with Porzingis and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist when the Mavs mm-hmm. got him. Mm-hmm. But the other thing you can do with that is play a five that can space the floor and then just have a lot more real estate to operate and then you make life easier on lamello and so i think that the risk premium of trading hayward is really high unless you think you have that secondary creator especially because you need a primary for when lamello is not playing well or off the floor or everything else like that but oh god the turner the turner possibilities are just so interesting for me
1: <laughs> i just, the big man room in indiana in general is Indiana in general (laughs) just intrigues and confuses me.
2: Well, and there's a weird parallel with Indiana and Toronto where I like a lot of the players that they have, but I don't necessarily like them together. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about how those players could be other places and I would enjoy it more like... Mm -hmm. Turner Simonis is it's worked better than I anticipated but like for me like Fred Van Vliet is maybe the ultimate of that like I love Fred Van Vliet he's an important part of what the Raptors are doing but would I rather see Fred Van Vliet as like a as a you know as the third best player on a team that or fourth best player on a team that's a title contender you bet because we already saw it and it was pretty great
1: yeah like he more than I don't want to say more than any point guard because like there are a lot of point guards worse than him obviously um, but like he needs like a big wing creator just to take some pressure off of him. like he should not be initiating your offense like he just does not have it at the rim. he doesn't have really doesn't have it anywhere outside of the three point range and like you just don't want him pounding the ball into the dirt and taking those off the dribble shots as like your primary guy. so uh it's not fair to him that he's in the role that he's in like there's only so much you could do there.
2: yeah. Uh, anything else you, you're feeling? You're feeling a lot of pressure. I mean, you have, of course, other wonderful opportunities to talk about things. Anything else that you feel like you want to discuss or are we good to go?
1: Um, I will copy my co-host at, Steve, at the Dunker Spot, Steve Jones Jr.'s homework for a minute. Like, John Moran has been freaking incredible. Oh, my God. Amazing. He, he has been absurd. Like, he looks so much more comfortable against teams ducking under picks with him. Like, he's firing those jumpers with more comfort. He's chewing up space when they drop too far against him. The craft in the half court has risen somehow, and he was already super crafty as a playmaker. Man, if the three point if the three point shot is real with him, good luck.
2: Yeah, and I mean with Jaw, the other pieces. I mean the jaw dropping athleticism, but also like I I really liked a lot of his passing vision last year. But it was always kind of like, will he figure out and can he figure out the, the the weaknesses at least to the point where all the other stuff becomes truly scary and I'm not saying he's there now but I'm saying the early returns are that he's more likely to get there than I than I had I thought and that is so exciting
1: shout out to Memphis talk about another team that has a lot of players that I like Memphis has a lot of them also please I want Brandon Clark to flourish that's just my personal <laughs> bias I want to see him in, a, in rotation consistently all year long I want to see him getting back to knocking down jumpers because I don't know what the heck happened to it last year uh yeah Memphis has been a fun watch for me early in the season
2: yeah absolutely and I'm I want to keep an eye on their their defense I've gotten asked about that a couple times recently because it's still it's it's still a a concern there as we record this dead last but they're not playing without Dylan Brooks and they're still figuring some stuff out I'm not super worried yet
1: yeah we'll see like uh, I think the big swing for them this year is how much time can Jaron Jackson Jr. play at the five yep and like he's been flying around on defense to his credit like certainly not an elite level guy like there are Still, some deficiencies. I still don't love him as a rebounder. Like, he still can be a little overeager. Um, The fouls are creeping back, but I'm just glad he's on the court as simple yeah. as that is <laughs> like last year was kind of unfair to him to where he was hurt his you know getting back into the flow of things was Memphis in the play-in race and then you get Utah of all teams to try to sort things out of um, defensively and all the actions that they run so like I'm glad he's actually had an offseason look really good in preseason and he's been mostly fine this year like has figured figure things out from two-point range but you know we'll see
2: yeah and the the other kind of connecting pieces that you you're Jared Jackson wanting to play center and wanting Brandon clark out there those two things could be happening together
1: uh my heart if it does ah mm-hmm.
2: uh, well thank you so much for taking time pleasure as always
1: thanks for having me man
2: thanks again to Nikias for taking the time to come on you can listen to him on the dunker spot podcast with steve jones jr the you late podcast with jasmine watkins and you can read his writing at basketball news including the james harden piece that we discussed relatively early on in this podcast you can also, of course, follow Nikias at NikiasNBA, NBA. Love having him on and getting that perspective in the early going where sometimes it can be hard to separate, in some ways, especially with good things, to what is genuine enthusiasm from being the real thing. And over the course of the next few weeks, we will get a much better sense of that. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, whatever podcast player you're using, that can really help. And. The show's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. There's no pattern to get into, so subscribing is the way to make it happen. And you can also help other people find the show, whether that's through word of mouth or by leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast, whatever you're choosing. It really does make a difference, helps other people find the show. You can also check out my other work, Nate Duncan and I, Going Strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime dunked on the free one is actually now two episodes a week because we are releasing the podcast version of our twitter spaces conversations which are every tuesday that is a podcast as well as what will typically be the 15 and 60s on sundays and then dunked on prime is the rest of the week and i actually did a discord chat for total access subscribers which was really fun this past week and they also if you weren't there live you got a transcript and then also you can check out the nba cast nate and i are doing blazers sixers on monday 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific. Really excited about that one. And we'll be doing that Mondays throughout the season. We truly love getting the opportunity. Appreciate it from from the NBA to, to do games, and you can actually watch it with us on via, you know, via League Pass. It's pretty cool. I also am in the process on a couple of pieces. Actually, I actually have one that's basically ready to submit for the Athletics, so you can look for that in the next few days, depending on how long it takes to get through editorial and for me to actually submit it, and have a few other things in the fire. I think my goal is to do roughly a piece a week over the next little while, depending on a few different factors. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it me. If you take the time to write it, I take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I will try to get back to you. I've actually been a little bit better this past week, um, but the promise is that I will read it. So if it's feedback on the show, hey, do this, do that, somebody to have on, that sort of thing, it, it really does make a difference. And while a lot of people are on my radar, knowing that, you know, like at one point, Nikias was there where I was already reading his stuff and people were like, you should have him on. And so started going through and I was already thinking about it, but you know, it, it's a little bit of a push. And so I really do appreciate that for whoever you think is, would be a good one, especially in some ways if they've never been on the show before, because then they're almost always in my mind to some extent. So that is more than enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
0: The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up.
1: Do it for your besties and the resties.
0: It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips.
1: And camp out.
0: To experience.
1: And big hugs.
0: And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania
2: taxpayer dollars.
0: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited World Class Treatment Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.